How are we doing? First day of spring yesterday. You know, it's exciting. At the same time, the worldwide church of Christians is celebrating Lent. So it's a kind of a time of somber reflection. At the same time, we get spring, and then we get a cold day, and we have songs about beauty and goodness, and we have people dying, and we have people being born. It's just amazing all this is going on, and guess who's here through it all? I wonder if you would humor me one more time, and just all stand up. We're going to do a little class involvement activity here. It doesn't matter who I am, but sometimes it bugs me when I don't know who the person is. So I taught for Mesa, at Mesa Grande for six years, and I've been a teacher for like 11. Now I'm a school counselor at Arroyo Valley High School in San Bernardino. So if you feel like you're in the classroom, well, it's because that's where I'm at home. If you match what I say, remain standing. If you don't, then sit down, okay? So if you're a parent, remain standing, please. Okay. If you are a mother, please remain standing. All right. If you are a mother who has, has given birth by natural childbirth, please remain standing. In case you need to understand that natural childbirth, there's still, still a man standing back there. <laughs> <laughs> Pastor Lou, you can sit. <laughs> Natural childbirth is a process in which no drugs may be administered to the woman's body, but the father can have all he wants. That's how Bill Cosby clarifies it. Can you just give a hand to these tough women? Oh, my goodness. I am not worthy. You can all sit down. Yes, ladies, you may sit now. You've suffered enough <laughs> for a lifetime. You know, natural childbirth has this incredible piece of it that why I'm thinking about it is because sort of the the height of natural childbirth experience is this thing called transition. And we're having this conversation for a few weeks about transition as we experience transition as a church. And so, you know, being a good man, I want to understand what women go through. And so I did what a good man does. He looked it up on the internet. And I, I found this simple definition on Wikipedia, a phase during childbirth contractions during which the cervix completes its dilation. Big deal, you know? Transition, that's what it is. Well. I found a, a website that has a little more female contributions to it than apparently this Wikipedia does, um, birthingnaturally.net, and they give a more vivid description of what transition is. <laughs> it's the shortest part of labor, and that's all the good news that there is. It's short, maybe 15 or 20 minutes. It's also the most intense part of labor. Some women find that being reminded that they're in transition increases their ability to handle the intensity and some women do not find that helpful at all. Because the major emotional marker for this stage is giving up. In this part of labor, most women ask for medication. And again, as Bill Cosby puts it, that's when they stand up in the stirrups and scream to the delivery room, I want morphine. You know, the physical signs are, are, are striking. And think about how the physical signs of labor and transition might compare to other transitions. Shaking, trembling, in fact, there they are, shaking, trembling, shivering, sometimes nausea and vomiting. Some women feel hot flashes and cold sweats. Other women may begin burping or hiccuping as the body prepares to deliver. They cannot relax. They cannot be comfortable. Suddenly, a woman who's been feeling okay, she's been handling labor all right, suddenly she has no idea what to do, and nothing is comfortable anymore. Transition. No idea what to do. Nothing is comfortable. 
And birthingnaturally.net has this sage advice that at this point, it's the job of her coach or labor partner to assist her into various positions and attempt to find the one that will keep her most comfortable. Um, gentlemen who haven't coached a woman through labor, just tell me how that goes, you know. Get back to me. Transition is a time when the mother is the most emotionally needy as well. Some women need constant assurance, assurance that they're okay, that the baby is fine. This may be due to the overall giving up and the feeling that she's out of control. That giving up feeling can kind of be recognized by some of the comments that they make. For example, they say, I can't do this, or I need something, or you did this to me. <laughs> she can no longer handle the way that she has been, and she needs to do something different. Now, I apologize to all the natural childbirth uh, enthusiasts in the audience, and I give huge props to my mother who's here, um, who had all three of us by natural childbirth. I love you, Mom, and you're insane. <laughs> you are nuts. <sighs> and, and to the whole church, I just want to tell you, since birthingnaturally.net told me to, you're in transition. Dad, did that help? You think they're better off now? You are, okay? We're in transition together, and Our Lady of Calamesa is now Our Lady of La Sierra. So I speak to you, Lady Church of Calamesa. This is an intense bit of labor that we're going through. And though we may not be experiencing nausea, vomiting, hot flashes, hiccups, or burping, at least not any more than normal, okay, we are like a woman in transition to some extent. We're probably not feeling very comfortable. In transition, we feel out of control. What are we going to do? Search committee, tell us, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? What's next? If I could just give you this bit for consolation, we've been here before as a church, and not just Calamasa Church, but I mean like the church, Abraham, transition from his family to who knows where, the promised land. Jacob, transitioned from promised land back to Egypt. Moses, back out of Egypt into the promised land and through the wilderness for 40 years. And then, as Saul shared with us last week, transition from Moses to Joshua. And Saul began sharing with us about another important MJ transition, not Moses to Joshua, but Michael Jordan retiring. And I think this podium is still a little bit wet with his tears from when he shared about that, because it, it was a hard transition. How can you imagine life without Michael Jordan in the NBA? How can you imagine, as an Israelite, life without Moses as your leader? And Saul mentioned three things that he noticed as he studied that story. He said, first of all, transition impacts the entire community. And not just changes of leadership, but if one of you suffers, we all suffer with you. If one teacher gets a pink slip at Mesa Grande Academy. It impacts families. It impacts the church. Transition impacts the entire community. So we're in this together. Number two, he said that human leadership is temporary. Humans die. Humans move on. God never ordained anybody to do anything forever, except for maybe live with him in heaven. But on earth, human leadership is temporary. The one thing that's constant is God. And that's number three. God is always present through the changes. And so why look to a human leader when we can look to God? He left us with this sort of overarching truth. Let's fix our eyes not on human leaders, but on Jesus, the author, the finisher, the alpha, the omega of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
So today, to build on, on what Saul did with us last week, I want to share two stories of transition that come out of the New Testament. Fix our eyes on Jesus. I want to talk about the Jesus people, those who walked with him, who had their eyes fixed on him for three whole years of their life. And what a three years they must have been. These people had their lives changed, their minds blown, their souls transformed in those three years with Christ. And then, after a little announcement to the disciples, in a few months he was gone. And, and you know, ladies, you may have gone to a Lamaze class and you were planning on having natural childbirth and then you saw the Lamaze video and you thought, maybe not, you know? Maybe transition is something that I'm not quite ready for. You started wondering about this whole idea. Hey, honey, maybe an only child's not such a bad idea, you know? And, and when Jesus made this announcement to his disciples about the transition that he was going to make, a little bit like that woman watching the, the Lamaze video, the disciples weren't so sure they were ready for such a transition. And Peter, of course, is never afraid to say so. Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter must not have heard that part because he was like, took Jesus aside and he said, no, Lord, never. This shall never happen to you. And we get on Peter about this, but imagine, you know, imagine what it would be like to have that kind of a news dropped on you. You thought Israel was disappointed when Moses died. You know, you thought Saul was disappointed when Ma Michael Jordan retired. But this was the son of God as your pastor, your hero, your teacher, your friend, your mentor, your bud. 24-7 for three years, and soon he's going to be treated like human trash, taken away. Following Jesus had been painful labor at times, but this transition was just excruciating. They were out of control. They didn't know what to do. And perhaps they even wanted to give up. Have you been there? Are you there today? <sighs> well, Jesus tried to explain to them, well, this is really best, you know. He, he acknowledged their pain, but he said, this is really going to be best for you. And in the book of John, he, he told them, look, I, I've said these things, and you're filled with grief. We can do the next slide. My trigger's not working up here. Thanks. Because I've said these things, you're filled with grief. Jesus didn't say not to grieve. He just said, you are filled with grief. He acknowledged their grief. But I tell you the truth. It's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you, the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I'll send him to you. So Jesus tries to convince them, you know, this is a good thing. It was almost like a well-intentioned husband speaking to his laboring wife and saying, honey, this is transition. It gets worse before it gets better, but you'll make it. On the other side of your pain, our pain, there's life, there's birth, and it's going to be beautiful. And disciples, in their pain, they can't get it. You know, they, right on, Jesus, bring that comforter, whoever that is. But please, does, does it have to go down like this? Does the story have to take this, this twist? Do we have to experience this transition? Even Jesus asked that question, Lord, is there another way? But no, there was not. It did have to go down that way, and it did. Jesus died as promised, and also as promised, Jesus rose. And he, he ascended to heaven, and we get to celebrate that in the next few weeks. And if you're new to this church or just back from not hanging out at church much lately, this is the time to be here, okay? This is the most exciting time in church life, the resurrection, 
So stick around. It's exciting. It's perfect for us now that we know that it's all history. But when you're caught up in that story and you're thinking about Jesus was here, he resurrected, that's great, but he's only here for 40 days and now he's back in heaven. A whole new set of transitions has to occur. These followers of Christ went from being followers of a holy rabbi to being temples of a holy ghost that they couldn't see. You know, they went from being apprentices to this visible and audible son of God in the flesh to being vessels of the spirit of God who was trying to speak through their flesh. And that's a messier business. Transition number one. This, that transition from Jesus to disciple to Holy Spirit to disciple. By grace, they made it. By grace, they made the transition. And, and I want to just take a minute to bask in the beauty of how well that transition went in the end. In the book of Acts, we read a few snapshots, and we're just going to take three quick snapshots of the kind of life that was birthed in the disciples after they made that transition. Before we talk about transition number two. The Bible says we, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. I mean, imagine that. Just... And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled, not just halfway, but filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. What an experience. What a birth. What a bunch of new life had flowed into these people via this transition. Another snapshot in Acts later in that same chapter it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Dig how many times it talks about eating. That's good. They broke bread and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. That's crazy. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I mean, just feast on what it would be like to be in a church like that. To some degree we are, but imagine how incredible that must have been. Last snapshot of this church. Generosity. Acts chapter 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything. Everything they had. With great power, the, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. It's beautiful, you know? This is beautiful. Until the crisis came, and the next transition was upon them. Barely had they begun to just enjoy this wonderful time before more crisis came. And, and there had been sort of four shocks of this crisis. There had been imprisonments. There had been some, some dissent in the community. But I think the big crisis came when the first deacon, Stephen, was stoned, creating a ripple effect of persecution throughout the young church. And that's where, that's where uh, Kathy's depressing 
scriptural com- scripture comes from. I was out there thinking, oh, poor Kathy, you know. She's reading the scripture, and she's hoping somebody will say amen at the end of this, but it's pretty sad, you know. So let's read it one more time. And, and it's, in our culture, we're so uncomfortable with, with tragedy, you know, and, and so into, like, things that are just supposed to always be okay. The temperature's always supposed to be right. And so we don't deal well with pieces of scripture like this, but I just want you guys to enter with your whole heart into this passage right now with special focus on those highlighted words. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. I mean, contrast this to those three snapshots we just looked at. From all this grace and goodness and sharing and love and freedom and spirit and life, now we've got persecution, scattering, burial, mourning, destruction, dragging off, locking up. And I just invite you to take another step into this, into this passage. And I want to ask you, how can you relate to persecution or criticism hurtful things that have been done? How can you relate to being scattered, to being isolated, separated from those that you love? How can you relate to burial, having to say goodbye to the ones that are close to you? How do you relate to mourning, to feeling destroyed, or the work that you've done so well has felt destroyed? When do you feel dragged off by something sort of beyond your control to a place you don't want to be? To what extent do you feel locked up, imprisoned, stuck? It's a depressing place to pause, but the truth is that the Bible is a book that's not just all fun and games, you know? The Bible is a book that goes with us to those hard places that are all very real in our lives. In fact, there's a whole book called Lamentations, which the Hebrew name for Lamentations isn't Lamentations, it's How which in Hebrew, if I can pronounce it somewhat right, is something like, Echa. and you've got to say it with that catch in your throat, you know? Echa. And it's almost like you've been away on a trip, you come home, your house is burned down, and there's nothing left. And you look and you just say, oh, how could this have happened? Lamentations is a book about mourning the loss of Jerusalem. A whole book about mourning, a whole book of grieving, I think it's important that God's given us a book like that. It's not that much fun to read, but if you are hurting and you need to know that God's been there and God's people have been there, Lamentations is a book to spend some time in. Because sometimes, no matter how much we know about the joy of the Lord, there's just nothing to say before circumstances that are so dark. I mean, in my counseling office, in the last two weeks, I did not know what to say as I watched the tears fall shower from the eyes of that little boy, 14, dressed up in gangster's clothes, mourning the fact that he'd never had a father. I didn't know what to say to the girl who was telling me, you know, she's been getting in trouble for threatening people with violence lately, and yet her dad just got locked up for having drugs in his car. What do you say? What do you say to the girl who's been physically and emotionally abused by her father for the last 15 years? She's been pregnant this year, you know, she's been in the BMC, she's had all this stuff, but what do you say? You don't just tell them, hey, it's just a transition, it's all going to be cool. 
you got to kind of just be there with them. And, and, and I think the Bible does that. Lamentations, aha, how, Lord, how could you let this happen? I can't understand how much this must hurt. Kathleen O'Connor makes a comment about lamentation. She says, lamentation names what's wrong. It names what is out of order in God's world. We don't have to pretend it's all good. Lamentation keeps human beings, well, lamentations names what keeps human beings from thriving in all their creative potential. Simple acts of lament expose these conditions, name them, open them to grief and anger, and make them visible for remedy. Lamentations. See, we, we sometimes think we're supposed to sort of just get over it and then come to God and, and, and experience the joy of the Lord, and I, I tend to agree with Thomas Merton who said, sin is when God comes looking for your face and you give him a mask. Sin is when God comes looking for your face and you give him a mask. In times of crisis, in times of tragedy, in times of painful transition, we've got to give God our real face, even if it's a hurting, sad, tearful face. I mean, what would you say to these believers at a time of crisis like we just described? What would you say if you were one of them? What kind of questions might you ask? What questions might you be asking God, like, how could you do this, Lord? Echa. How could you allow this tragedy? You know, we assume that it's from the devil because God doesn't do bad stuff like that, but why would you allow it? You know, why would the Father let the enemy tear down what the Spirit has built in Jesus' name? It just doesn't make sense. Why do such bad things happen to such good people? Or maybe we're asking, Lord, why did you bring this trial? Some of us tend to believe that, you know, God sends the trial for a reason. Maybe we think, holy judge, are you trying to find out if we're good enough to stand trial? Heavenly teacher, are you testing us to see if we pass? Is that necessary? At a biological level, we experience stress when about four things are present. Esther Sternberg, who's a scientist who looks at stress, um, she says when there's change, transition, when there's uncertainty, as in times of transition, and when there's a perceived lack of control, transition, we experience stress. And all of this is aggravated by the fact that sometimes we tend to isolate. We tend to, to step back from our communities of support. When you think about our current financial crisis, and, and we have all these things, we have change, we have uncertainty, we have a lack of control, and so someone loses their home. Do they want to come talk to people about that? No, it's embarrassing. It's a stigma. So you, you step back and you isolate more. Well, here in Acts, these people are isolated, but not because they're just trying to save their pride, because they're trying to save their skin. They're trying to get the heck out of Dodge so they can be safe somewhere else. But it has the same effect. They're isolated from their social groups. Their stress goes up. What will become of these people? Well, fortunately, there is more to the story. But I want to go back to these two questions first before we, we, we finish the story in, in Acts 8. Really, what do you think? Was this a trial? Was it God kind of sending something to, to find out if these Jesus people were faithful and strong enough? Did he need that information? And if so, does that mean that these people were supposed to just endure that trial with like a, a stoic stiff upper lip, natural childbirth style, you know? Or was it a tragedy? Was it something from the dark side, this random act of unkindness from Satan, something that we should just resent and, and resist and fight 
like good soldiers of faith? Or might it have been something different? You know, what if this, without trying to label it as of the devil or of God, is mere transition? A transition that hurts. A season of labor that once endured ends with a beautiful new life, even with joy. I got this whole childbirth metaphor from Jesus, and I love it when I get to steal metaphors that I wanted to use anyway from Jesus, because he's a good guy to, you know, sort of copy sermons from. So I want to look at what Jesus said about the childbirth thing. He says, I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So no matter how bad the transition is, when the child is born, you'd never go back and say, oh, take the kid, take the transition, and now I'm happier, right? She doesn't exactly forget it, but not everybody here is an only child. So to some extent, crazy ladies forget. And Jesus says that that's how it works in transition. Thank God, otherwise I would have been an only child too. I mean, you, you look at the life that we got after my wife went through what she went through, man, and ah, there she is, you know? She would have never said, I'm not going to go through that pain. Well, she might have thought that for a minute, but once the baby's out, it's worth it, man, because there's life, there's beauty, there's goodness. And then we had two more. <laughs> she got to have those by C-section, and yes, they turned our world upside down, you know? <laughs> Did they make our life more messy? Absolutely. More fussy? Oh, yeah. You know, more inconvenient? Absolutely. Would we ever go back? No way. But let's go back to our friends in Acts. What, what was the new life, the joy at the end of their story? What was their little baby Brielle, their little baby Ashlyn or Malia, or, or you name your, your child, it's in the verse that Kathy read, but that I haven't read yet. So let's read the rest of the story. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. And the rest of the story begins here. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Wow. Notice what's there. Whatever was in here was not just some sort of like, it's cool to be a Christian, Jerusalem trend going on. It was so real and so powerful that when they scattered, it was still alive. And it wasn't just alive, but it went viral, you know? It went everywhere. And I want to just give you, again, three snapshots of how that life bore fruit. That's a mixed metaphor, isn't it? How that life manifested itself in, in the new areas that these people were spread to. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. Now remember, Samaria, that's like you don't go there. Samaritans are bad. We don't like Samaritans. Jewish people just don't go there, well, except for Jesus. But now, Philip was there and they were receiving Christ. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. 
new life flowed to Samaria, where the Holy Spirit was poured out. You read on in this chapter, and a famous sorcerer becomes a Jesus follower. You read on, and another Philip story tells about how a royal official from the queen, for the queen of Ethiopia gets baptized in some random puddle, like along a road going down to Gaza. And I can just imagine, you know, the Heavenly Father, like cradling this new life, this new church life, this new kingdom life in his arms and loving it, you know, loving all the beauty that's there. Still hurting for his, his dear bride who had to suffer so much to yield this life. And yet he knows his bride well enough to know that she would never go back and avoid the pain, knowing that the pain and the transition yielded this beautiful new life. I know my wife well enough to know that, and God knows us well enough to know that transition yields life that's worth it. What transitions are you facing right now? You know, maybe it is a child being born. We are all facing a transition of losing our pastor to a ministry at a different location. Maybe your child is growing up and moving out. The death of a loved one. Evelyn, Eldridge, and family. Maybe a divorce. Maybe a loss of income because you lost your job or because you're trying to retire and your nest egg is much smaller. Maybe you have a health issue. You can't do what you used to do. It's a transition. Maybe someone's betrayed you and you have to transition from a trusting relationship to insecurity. How do you deal with that? Maybe you're just transitioning to this new dip in your approval rating at home or at work, what transitions are you facing? And how are you relating to those transitions? There's two ways you could look at it. You could say, hey, this is a tragedy. Is this a tragedy? Is this something dark that has come from the enemy? Maybe. And pain is something to be mourned with all our hearts. Lamentation style. Say, aha, how, God? Because the pain of transition just flat out stinks. You don't try to tell a woman anything else who, who's in the middle of transition. You don't say, it doesn't hurt, it's okay, this is fun, take joy in the Lord, yeah. you know? <laughs> you say, Echa, honey, I'm so sorry. I don't know how you can make it, but praise God you are, you're beautiful, you rock, or say nothing, you know? My motto is no pain, no pain, you know? That, that, I think that's better than no pain, no gain, but, but when I think that the tragedy came from the devil, it makes me kind of wonder, well, why did God allow it to? Those are the questions that kind of get stuck in my head and, and it doesn't make me much happier about God. And, and then on the other hand, if I decide that this transition is a trial, maybe God's testing the Calamasa Church to see if we've got what it takes to make it through, you know, the next phase of our life without a senior pastor for a while. But then I get a little nervous about why God's so rough about things sometimes. Like, couldn't you try me in like a smaller, less difficult way? Even my doctor tries to minimize the pain when he does a procedure, but life seems to give us no more anesthesia than this cold, hard bullet to bite. The bottom line is this. If you're waiting for an answer, I don't know if God causes or allows or has his hands completely off the transitions that occur in my life. I don't know. I don't have the theological firepower to even take that on this morning. I'll let someone else do it. It's probably a good conversation to have, but it's not what I'm trying to do today. I think there are other questions to ask besides did God cause this, allow it, intend it, ignore it? Because sometimes I think transitions that we label as bad are just transitions. Henry Nouwen says, in this crazy world, there's an enormous distinction between good times and bad, between sorrow and joy, 
But in the eyes of God, they're never separated. Where there is pain, there's healing. Where there is mourning, there's dancing. Where there's poverty, there is the kingdom. So maybe it's not just good or bad. The Bible has these verses, and I hope, I pray that these will not just sound trite to you this morning if you're going through something hard, because like I said, your first job, if you're going through something hard, is to lament it and ask how. But I do want to offer these truths. Paul says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope doesn't disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may mature so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Again, are these verses that you read to a woman in transition as she's giving birth, are they helpful? No. But if you've grieved far enough down the path that you're able to receive these as encouragement, then I offer those. And if not, then just go read Lamentations and know you've got company. I, I think, though, that as we grieve and, and as we move down that path of grief, the question that may be the most helpful for us is not this one, God, how could you? God, how could you allow this? God, how could you send this? God, how could you ignore this? Which we don't know if he does any of the above. But maybe this question, God, how will you? God, how will you be with me through this pain? God, how will you grow me in ways that I didn't see the need for until this happened? God, how will you move me from where I am comfortable into a place where your grace is more needed? Lord, how will you connect me to a community that's bigger and more diverse and more loving than I ever thought possible? God, how will you give birth to new life in me and through me? I want to leave you with just two things as we deal with our public, community, and private transitions. And one is that most of the time, transition hurts. It does. It stinks. So grieve it. Lament it. Say, aha. Turn your real face to God, not some mask. Transition hurts. And second, by grace, that same transition that hurts so badly can bring new life. It's going to be messy. It's going to be inconvenient and sometimes crazy life. But when you look at the face of a baby and you look at the beautiful things that the Holy Spirit has poured out in the church, what will we not suffer for that gift of new life? Because part of our prayer is going to be feasting on these images of new life that signify the new kind of new life that God is willing to pour out in us and through us as we go through transition. So open your eyes and let's pray together. Father God, I pray for will, rivers in the wilderness, pathways through this hard time in our church and for whatever difficulties we may be going through. We just look ahead to the life that we know you're going to create. These beautiful children, Father, they crack me up. And you must laugh too, despite yourself. The pain that went into the creation of each one of these is just so excruciating, Lord, and yet the beauty just seems to trump that every time. 
And so, Father, whatever pain people are feeling right now, I just pray that these images will speak to them of what's on the other side of that, Lord. Life, messy life, fussy, squabbly life, but life that, ah, we just want, Lord. So give that to us. Give us peace, give us patience as we endure transition, and give us hope for the new life that's on the other side of that. And I pray that for every single person here in the name of Jesus.